Alrighty, I want to welcome everybody to today's expert interview. My name is Candice Smith Adewale of the Loving You Lifestyle and Blissfully Feminine, and I am here with six-time author Jeffrey Landers. Do you prefer Jeff or Jeffrey? Jeff. Jeff. Okay, with Jeff Landers. Um, the two books that I read and, and the reason why I, I am interviewing him <laughs> are Divorce, his book, Divorce, Think Financially, Not Emotionally, and How to Protect Yourself, Your Financial Well-Being as a Stay-at-Home Mom. Um, the reason why I decided that this was so important to talk about is because on my platform, we, we discuss a lot of these things. And Jeff, Jeff is, aside from being an author, he is an international divorce accounting expert from West Palm Beach, Florida. And um, Jeff, I would like you, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and specifically why you decided to exclusively work with women in regards to divorce accounting? Sure, um, so I've been doing this for nine years now. Um, I work exclusively with women. Um, throughout the United States, uh, women that are going through a financially complicated divorce. Um, and I focus, even though I did attend law school, I'm not an attorney. Um, so I work strictly on the financial aspects of divorce uh, in order to help my clients get the best possible settlement uh, after their divorce. Uh, and in some cases, I help them post-divorce. Uh, you know, many times they'll get a settlement from their husbands uh, and it'll be, okay, what do I do with this money now? How do I invest it? How do I make it last as long as possible? Uh, so in many cases, I'll work with them post-divorce as well. Um, I got it actually early in my career, I was involved in real estate, uh, mostly commercial real estate. Um, and in 2007, I think it was, uh, I decided to switch careers. I always wanted to become a financial advisor. So I started working with Wells Fargo advisors, doing investments, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, uh, things of that nature. Um, and after a while, several of my clients were going through a divorce and I realized, hmm, this might be a very interesting way to differentiate myself. Uh, from every other financial advisor that's basically doing uh, the same thing. So I developed an interest in divorce, uh, went to get uh, my certification in it. Uh, and as I got more and more into it, um, I realized that more often than not, uh, for a variety of uh, reasons, uh, women needed more help uh, than men did. Um, and... You know, for a lot of reasons, you know, maybe they were working, had kids, took care of a household, uh, sort of deferred uh, the financial decisions uh, to their husband, uh, which is still, I, I read an article this morning that said that 60% uh, of, of women, I think between the ages of 25 and 40 are still deferring all financial decisions and investments uh, to their husbands. So this is prevalent uh, wow. all age groups. And what invariably happens is, is that a, a lot of these women, when, you know, divorce uh, pops up, um, 
they have no idea what's going on with the money, what their investments are, uh, where the money is, um, how much their husbands make, uh, and what it's being spent on and, and all of those things. Uh, and these are all aspects of um, the financial aspects that, that I help women with. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's extremely important and commendable that you decided to, to do this. Um, I want to talk a little bit about marriage, the fantasy versus the reality, because what I find is that women often, we often get caught up in the fantasy of marriage and our wedding day, and we plan for how beautiful our wedding dress, and we know exactly how the bridesmaids' dresses are and the flowers and the napkins are matching, etc. But we don't really take the time to understand that we are in, into a legal contract with another person and that the legal contract that we're entering is not necessarily the total sum of the relationships. So um, can we talk a little bit about what you have learned, the reality versus the fantasy? And uh, when you are speaking to women, what are some of the common things that you are hearing regarding the breakdown of their marriage? Okay, so I, I mean, those are, those are two very different questions. So, you know, when you're talking yeah. about um, before you get married and, and you have a significant other, your boyfriend, your fiance, um, and you're talking about getting married, uh, it's important to, to have the financial discussion uh, of, you know, maybe one of you is a saver, the other one's a spender, what are your goals? Are you looking to buy a house? Uh, do you still have student loans to pay off? Are you looking to, to raise a family? Um, what is the current debt situation? Um, you know, do both of you have credit card debt, student debt? How much? How's that going to be taken care of? I, I mean, I often kid around with people and say, um, you know, couples will much sooner discuss their sexual preferences than their financial preferences. Um, it's it's wow. like a topic that still nobody wants to talk about how much money they make, how much debt they have, uh, you know, what they save, what's in their 401k, um, but everything else is on the table. And of course, once you get married, if you've never had that discussion, um, you may be in for surprises. I mean, you as the woman may be a saver. A lot of women are extremely security conscious. Uh, and if all of a sudden you find yourself married to somebody, uh, that's spending money wildly and, you, you know, not paying attention and, you, you know, all of a sudden, you know, your, your, the credit card debt is going up. Uh, you know, money is one of the biggest factors uh, in, in fights between spouses. And, and of course, it's certainly a big factor uh, leading up to divorce. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, those discussions are extremely important to have. And, uh, I always tell women that those are some of the things that should be negotiated prior to marriage, having some of those, those hard discussions. As far as the women that you work with, what are some of the common things that you're hearing regarding the breakdown of their marriages? Is there like a common thread that you well, see? I, I, I think it's usually infidelity. Um, infidelity and, and drug and alcohol issues, uh, and many times all of that goes together. 
Uh, so many times you find someone that has, you know, a drug and or alcohol problem, uh, and they're also being unfaithful. And of course, then they're spending money on their paramours. So, you know, their financial issues. Um, unfortunately, I would say roughly a third of my clients have been in some sort of abusive relationship. Uh, so it could be emotional, financial, uh, and unfortunately, in, in, you know, a fairly large percentage, actual physical abuse. Um, so, which is of course, extremely unfortunate. And that creates a whole different, because then you're beyond talking about financial security, you're making sure that you're physically safe. And, you know, the first thing that you right. need to do is get out uh, and worry about the money after. But that, that's, that's a whole different discussion. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, aside from preparing for married life beyond the wedding day, how much knowledge should women have regarding the divorce laws in her individual state or country? Well, I, I, I mean, the, the, the reality is that, that nobody thinks about divorce until it happens. I mean, it's not anything, you know, that you taught in school. Uh, it's not anything that you're really going to Google if you're happily married or recently married. I, I, I mean, that, that right. would <laughs> Um, and unless maybe you came from parents that were divorced that, you know, you've lived through that experience and, and have some sort of knowledge, uh, most people don't know and don't care uh, in, until it actually happens. And, and then all of a sudden, it's a scramble to figure out what's going on. And as you correctly pointed out, um, there is no federal divorce law. Uh, each, each of the 50 states has their own uh, laws regarding divorce. So what's true in New York is not true in Florida, is not true in Texas or California or, or, or wherever. Um, and it's not where you got married. Uh, it's basically where you reside and where you're getting divorced. Um, in order to get divorced uh, in, in a particular state, uh, and, and not only a particular state, I mean, even different countries, uh, they have certain residency requirements, which are typically between six months and a year that you need to uh, re reside in order to be able to file for divorce in a given state. Okay. Um, I think that it's something that we don't want, I mean, obviously, like you said, divorce is something we don't want to talk about, but I think that it's, it's necessary to at least consider that it could possibly happen. And I think aside from trying to divorce-proof your marriage as much as possible, um, preparing, at least knowing, arming yourself with the information that's necessary in case something should happen, um, especially in, in cases of alimony. I know that there has been a lot of, of alimony reform going uh -huh. on there is the uh, you talk about that in your book about alimony reform we see a lot of we see a lot more women especially celebrities having to pay female celebrities having to pay their former spouses large sums of alimony the person who comes to my mind is the r&b singer mary j blige who had to what had to um pay her uh, former self, thirty thousand dollars a month in alimony, and I'm not sure 
if that is temporary alimony or something that would be ongoing. But can you kind of touch on the alimony reform movement for us, please? Well, sure. I, I, I mean, the, the, the whole rationale, I mean, wh wh if you go back and, and, you know, read about what happened, how alimony came to be, it was basically to prevent women and their children from becoming wards of the state uh, and, and going on welfare. So the state didn't want to pay for all these women that were without income and their children. So basically, they created alimony laws, uh, you know, having, again, back in the day, it was probably 100% men uh, that were paying alimony to support their wives. Um, as time has gone on and more and more women came into the workforce, uh, and here we are, you know, in the, in the 2000s, um, the people behind the alimony reform are saying, hey, wait a second, you know, what, what women... Uh, are just as capable of men to, you know, earn an income. Uh, it's not fair that, you know, again, mostly men. Now, things have changed. I've had numerous clients, just as you uh, indicated, where, the, where it's the woman paying the alimony, but that's still um, a relatively small percentage uh, of, of all divorces. Um, but the men are basically saying, look, you, you, you know, women are in the workforce, you know, it's not fair for us to have to, you know, support an ex-wife for 5, 10, 20 years, and in some cases, lifetime. Uh, they're fully capable of going out, earning an income, uh, and supporting themselves maybe after a few years. Of course, that's not true. Um, you know, I've had many, many clients, and, and, and I recall one client, um, she was a surgeon, um, except she went off after getting married and had five kids and hasn't performed surgery for 20 years. Okay, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want her operating on me. Uh, <laughs> but, but, but her husband was trying to say that, you know, with a medical degree and everything, she's more than capable of making several hundred thousand dollars a year, and there was no need for alimony. The reality is, is that all her skills were completely obsolete. When you know she was practicing 20 years ago, uh, it was a different world. Now they have laparoscopic, you know, robotic surgery. I, I mean, she wouldn't even know where to begin. So of course, she wasn't capable of of making anything close to that. Uh, and and ultimately, her husband did have to pay alimony. Um, because the argument was ridiculous. But you hear that very, very often, women that gave up a career in order to stay home and have children, and now their skills are obsolete. And especially if they're now in their 50s or 60s. I mean, you know, you, you can't expect, you know, a 60-year-old woman to go back to school, learn new skills, and then, you know, get, get an entry-level job at the age 65. I mean, the, the, the rationale is sort of ridiculous. Now, someone is asking, what would be a good way to ask if alimony is involved and how long it's expected to go on for a potential mate? I'm, I'm assuming that's based on the judge judge's well, discretion, correct? The, well, yeah. I, I, I mean, you know, let me preface this by saying, and I tell this to all of my clients, if there's a way that you could come to a reasonable settlement with your husband without going to court, 
you want to do it. Now, obviously that doesn't work in any cases because a lot of husbands are, you know, either they're gonna offer a pittance in alimony or they're gonna say no way, no how, or whatever, or they're hiding assets and the, a lot of stuff is going on that you have no choice but to go to court. Um, when you do go to court, judges have a lot of discretion. So both parties are really gambling because you have no idea I mean, maybe the judge himself is paying alimony and is pissed off about it uh, and doesn't want to award. I mean, you, you don't know what's going on in their personal lives, if they had a fight with their spouse that day, if they hate your attorney, if they hate what you're wearing. Uh, it, it becomes a very subjective thing. So you're taking a chance when you go in front of a judge. Um, depending on the state, there's a lot of different criteria uh, for determining alimony. I mean, there's a whole list. What are the ages of uh, the parties? What's their education level? Uh, what's their health and age of children and so many things. But basically, if I were to boil it down to a simple formula, it's one, the person who's going to pay the alimony, can they afford to do that? And two, what is the need of the person to be receiving alimony? So let's assume that you know, the husband has a good job or a successful business and will make the assumption that, that he can pay whatever the alimony is. Um, how much really depends on the expenses, the need of, of the woman? Okay, is she, is she now keeping the house? Is she gonna have mortgage payments, tax payments? How much are the grocery bills, uh, you know, clothing expenses? I mean, you could go through the whole litany of whatever and then you come up with what her expenses are. Now, if she's working, okay, her income is going to be deducted from that. And the difference conceivably would be the amount of alimony to be paid. How long again, depends on the state. I, I mean, you know, just for a general rule of thumb and it's very general, let's say 50% of the term of the marriage. So if you've been married for 10 years, maybe you get five years of alimony. In other states, it could be, you know, if it's a long-term marriage, 20 years, you, you might get well in excess of 10 years. And if you've been married for 30 years, it might be permanent alimony. So it, it, it really depends. Um, and, you know, having read my books, you'll see that I'm an advocate of trying to get money up front instead of getting alimony. So if there's sufficient assets Okay, and, and again, I mean, you, you know, you're talking about a lot of money. If somebody's getting, you know, $25,000 a year in alimony for 10 years, that's a quarter of a million dollars. Not everybody has an extra quarter of a million dollars to pay you a lump sum up front. Um, but if those assets are there, it makes sense to get, even if it's partially, get as much upfront in lieu of alimony as you can, because you never know what happens with your husband. You know, maybe right. he moves out of the country. Good luck trying to collect alimony. Maybe he moves to another state. Maybe he goes bankrupt. You know, maybe he has a disability and can't work anymore. And all of a sudden he's gonna go back to court and modify because he can't work. So, you, you, you know, what they always say, a bird in hand is worth more than two in the bush. If you could get a lump sum up front uh, in, in lieu of alimony, take the money and run. Not only that, right. you know, and especially if you have older kids or whatever, if, if you're not dependent on your ex for alimony, you're, you're totally untangling yourself from your ex. Okay, if you're getting alimony for 10 years, 
um, you know, you still got to deal with him. And, and you know, if right. he's like uh, a lot of husbands and he wants to give you a hard time, you know, he pays for two months, he stops paying for two months, you got to take him to court, which is an expense. Then he pays you for a few months and stops again. And it's like a never ending saga, uh, especially with husbands that are controlling and narcissistic. Uh, they're going to just do that for the, for the fun of it. Right, right. Um, wanted to talk now about prenup versus a postnuptial agreement. I'll admit that the very first time that I ever heard of a postnuptial agreement was when I read your book. <laughs> your okay. Book. And we've all heard of a prenup, but what exactly is a postnup? So. What's the difference? So prenup stands for prenuptial, which means before the wedding. Um, so this would be something that you and your fiance would agree to, you would sign prior to the wedding. After you're married, if you didn't have a prenup and now you want some protection, the only thing you could do is a postnup, post meaning after postnuptials after the wedding, or if you had a prenup, and you want to change the terms of that prenup after, the only way to do that is with a postnuptial agreement. Now, there are still some states that don't recognize a postnuptial agreement, so it's not recognized everywhere. And two, really? yeah. And two, the bar is it's more difficult to enforce a postnuptial agreement than a prenup. And here's the reason why. With the prenup, if the fiancés don't like the agreement, they walk away and they don't get married, they break up. Once you're married, okay, the law says that you have a fiduciary responsibility to each other and you're taking care of each other. Well, a postnup says you may have to give up stuff that you didn't have to give up in the absence of a postnup. So the law looks like, is there undue pressure? Because you can't just walk away, you're married. So the law may look that there was undue pressure on you after divorce, after marriage, to, to sign a postnuptial agreement. You just can't walk away as if you were only engaged and said, okay, it's not working out, you know, we're done. Um, so there's a much higher bar to a postnup, and postnups are invalidated much more often than prenups are. So, when and what under what circumstances should a postnuptial agreement even be negotiated or attempted to be negotiated? Um, there are a variety of circumstances. I think one of the things that I mention in my book is is okay after you're married. Let's say you both had very very successful careers. Um, and you decide you want to have a family, but because the husband is making more money than you, even though you have a very successful and promising career, you agree to become a stay-at-home mom and basically give up your career. A postnup would be a very good thing at that time because basically you're going to say to your husband, look, I've got this promising career. I'm making a lot of money. If I'm out of the workforce for the next five or 10 years, I'm never gonna get back to where I was, okay? I'm out of the loop, uh, my skills are becoming obsolete. Should something happen down the road um, that we get divorced, I want something in return 
for giving up a very promising career. So that, that would be an instance of a postnup. Uh, postnups are also used in cases of infidelity, where basically you're saying, okay, and you see this with a lot of celebrities, but you know, it could be for the average person as well. Um, you, you see very, very often, you know, uh, if there's some infidelity or something, uh, you have a postnup basically penalizing, okay, you, you know, Joe Schmo, uh, if you fool around on me again, it's going to cost you a quarter of a million dollars each time you do that. Um, and after the fifth time, you're going to give me an extra million dollars. It, 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 it works under that scenario as well, under many circumstances. Again, every state is different. Um, well, you said that there are, excuse me, some states that don't recognize um, the postnuptial agreement. What are those states? Do you know offhand? I do not. I do not. And and again, you know, things change every day uh, as to whether um, I, I just read this morning or yesterday um, that that the state of Utah no longer made it illegal to have an extramarital affair. Wow. That, that doesn't mean that they're saying that they're saying it's okay to have one, but what they're saying is by passing this bill that it's no longer criminal. Okay. Oh, okay. okay. A number of states still have adultery is still illegal. It's called fornication or, or something to that effect on, on the various state laws. We're forgetting about, you know, your spouse divorcing you and whatever. It's actually criminal that you could be arrested and thrown in jail. So Utah just passed that. Well, I should say that because I, I don't think the governor signed it yet. Um, to be determined, but I think the legislature just passed uh, making, uh, you know, uh, having an affair no longer a, a criminal act. Okay, so let's say, for for example, Jeff, <clears throat> you're a woman and, you know, there's a woman in this situation that wants to negotiate a postnuptial agreement with her husband, but he's being very resistant how can a woman still protect herself, you know, even if the post-nuptial agreement is just like a no-go? So, I, I mean, prior to divorce being on the horizon, um, and even when it comes on the horizon, but obviously the, the, the sooner the better. I, I think the most important thing, um, no matter how secure your marriage is, uh, is to be financially aware. Okay, know how much your husband makes, know what's going on in the tax returns, know what, what's in your bank account and where all the bank accounts are, know what your investments are. I, I mean, just be astute about everything that's going on. And that's not only in the event of divorce. I mean, you know, if your husband leaves for work that morning and gets hit by a bus and you have no idea where your money is, uh, you've got big problems. So just in general, um, you should be aware of everything of a financial nature, uh, where your money is, where it's going, how much is coming in, uh, and, and, and to, to the extent possible. Now, there, there are a lot of men, uh, and, and I hear from my clients all the time, their attitude is, you know what, I'm the one making the money, it's my money, I'll do what I want with it, and you don't need to know anything. Um, that signifies a problem in the marriage right there, but. Yeah. If you're also dealing with someone that, that that's abusive, whether emotionally or 
or, or physically, you, you can't push too hard because you're going to trigger a reaction that might be unpleasant, if not dangerous. Uh, and again, that's a whole different circumstance. But in a, in a, in a normal marriage, uh, you, you know, both parties should, and, and it's, you know, some families are different. So in some families, it's, it's the wife that pays all the bills and she knows where everything's going but leaves the investments and, you know, the stocks and bonds up to, to the husband. Uh, so they sort of split things. So both parties should really know what's going on with everything that they own. Aside from what you just mentioned, what are maybe two, one or two other mistakes that you see women make in their marriages regarding finances? Not, not having their own bank account. <clears throat> not putting mm. money away. Wow. Maybe your mom used to call it a rainy day fund or mad money or, 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 or whatever. But one of the biggest problems that I've seen is, let's say, you know, the, the, the wife is blindsided by the husband and all of a sudden he comes home one day and says, I'm done. Uh, you know, I met somebody else. I'm, I'm filing for divorce. And he cleans out the bank account. OK, they have a joint account and he <laughs> withdraws everything as he could. Uh, he files for divorce, he has plenty of money coming in, he hires the best attorney in town, and you have no income, and you have no money in the bank, and now you got a problem because most attorneys, depending where you are around the country, are probably going to need at least a $5,000 retainer fee, and if you're looking in an area like New York, you could be talking about $15,000 plus just, just to get started, um, and then if you don't have anything in your own name, you're scrambling. Now you're going to friends and family to see if you could borrow money. So having what I call a secret bank account, uh, having your own money, putting some money in there that, that your husband doesn't know about. And I've written articles about that and I've interviewed myself, divorce attorneys, and quite honestly, they're split, okay? Um, half the attorneys will say, you know what, that's a good idea. You need to protect yourself just in case. And other attorneys say, you know what, that could be a problem because if your husband finds out you have a secret account with thousands of dollars in it, uh, he's going to get all bent out of shape and wondering what else are you lying about and what else are you hiding? And maybe that in and of itself could create marital problems. So, um, you know, the jury's out on that, but personally, I believe that women should have that secret bank account just in case, uh, and you never know what happens and you don't want to be scrambling and at a disadvantage. Uh, the other thing also, the same thing, have your own credit cards, build up your own credit. Okay. Don't, don't just be, um, someone on, on your husband's credit, you know, an authorized user, um, or even a joint account, have, have your own name. So you know what, if, if you build up credit and you have a credit line of 10, 15, $20,000 and, and, and God forbid, you, you know, you do get blindsided, you could always charge that $5,000 retainer fee to, to, to your credit card. Um, so I, I think having credit in your own name, having your own separate bank account uh, is important. Um, you know, if, if you left a job um, to stay home and raise a family, to the extent that you can, you know, stay involved in your field, you know, keep yourself updated, 
uh, maybe even get a, a part-time job just to stay out there, keep networking, uh, so that if the situation comes back, that you have to get back into the workforce, you're not, you know, out of the loop for 10 or plus years, uh, and nobody's going to hire you. I think that is extremely smart advice, and that's something that I tell women, too. I, I um, coach a lot of women, and I... <clears throat> and even some of my own female relatives. And I, I had to convince one of my, uh, one of the women in my family that it was okay for her to have her own bank account. Because what I have found is that men are very good about having their own money and they're not going to tell you everything that they're spending their money on. And so that it's okay. It doesn't mean that you have a bad marriage just because you have this account, this just in case crap happens fund. Right. Um, and it's okay. It, it's okay. And I think a lot of women need at least to hear someone give them that permission. That's okay to have that, that, um, that secret money account to protect themselves. Um, and, and moving on to the next question, where do you where do you find or, or where do men usually hide their assets during your financial forensics that you do? What what have you found out? Oh, uh, everywhere. Um, I, I I mean, if they have a business, it's very easy to to hide it. You know, in 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 the company. Um, you know, I, I have clients whose husbands, you know, buy gold and silver and, you know, put it in a, a safe somewhere. Uh, I, I mean, stuff that sometimes is very difficult to, to track. Uh, they may prepay, you, you know, uh, their income taxes and then the following year get a refund to get that money back. Uh, they might buy, you know, something expensive, an antique or whatever that could be resold later. Uh, they might create fictitious loans to friends or, or, or sell things to friends. You, let, let's say they have a boat uh, that's worth $10,000. They might sell it to their friend for $100 and you know, make up some excuse. Oh yeah, the motor was shot on it or, or, or whatever. I, I, I mean, and of course in secret accounts also, um, you know, there, there, there's so many different places. I, I, I mean, the, if you have an imagination, you, you could just think of, of, of a million places. Uh, they, could, they could invest in someone's business, um, put money overseas. Um, you know, I have clients that are married uh, to people that have family and, and, you know, throughout Europe or Asia or the Middle East, uh, they're sending money over there. Uh, it's very, very hard to track. A lot of countries have laws that are not very friendly to, to, to women. So, um, it, you know, it becomes very, very difficult to go there and sort of find where the money is. They may be buy property, real estate uh, that you may not know of. Um, they might have a girlfriend and give her money and she's putting in an account to be held for after the divorce. Um, the, the the list goes on and on and on. I, I I mean, you know that 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 could be a two hundred page book in and of its own right. <laughs> Maybe that will be your next book because that is extremely interesting to me because I have seen 
um, divorces go on for a very long time because the uh, husband is hiding funds all over the place. Right. Um, and, and sometimes if, if, if he's done it for long enough, you know, it becomes a shell game. You know, if he's putting money in bank A and then switching it to bank B and then putting it here and putting it there and, you know, maybe burying some in his mother's backyard. I, I, I mean, if he has enough time um, to do it over the years that you're just unaware, um, it's going to be difficult, if not impossible, to really find everything. And even if you can, it becomes an extremely expensive process. I, and again, that goes back to what I was saying, to become informed as much as you can. If you know how much money your husband is making and you keep track of it, you could see on an ongoing basis. But if all of a sudden, 15 years into the marriage, you're trying to now trace the stuff that happened from year one over 15 years, Good luck with that. I mean, it's been moved so many different times. Um, you'll never be able to find it. Wow. Now, many women, including myself, we're more traditional in our thinking. And most of us believe that being a stay-at-home mom is extremely beneficial to the overall health and well-being of our families. What are the top things to consider for women like ourselves when transitioning from working out of the home to becoming the full-time CEO of the home? Well, as I said before, I mean, there are a number of things. One, you know, you could do that post-nuptial agreement, um, assuming that your spouse is willing to do so. And, and obviously, if he's not, then you can't have that done. Um, uh, again, everything that I said, you know, having that separate account, making sure you have your own money, your own credit cards, your own uh, credit line, um, keeping yourself in, involved. I, I mean, if you were in the health field, you know, that changes dramatically every year. S try to stay abreast of everything that's going on, you know, maybe go to conventions, go to seminars, still network with, with, with your old colleagues. Try to stay in the loop as, as, as much as possible uh, so that your skills and your knowledge don't become obsolete, that if something happened, um, at least, you know, 10 years after the fact, let's say, you still have connections because you've been networking, you, you, your skills, you, you're still aware of what's going on in the field and the latest techniques uh, and, and, you know, whatever it is. Uh, so that you become more employable. And, and even, you know, if you could do a couple of side consulting gigs or whatever, I mean, to the extent possible, uh, you know, do that. Now, it's not always easy, you know, if you have a couple of kids, you know, <laughs> that's a full-time job in and of itself. I mean, I have two adult daughters, I remember, and I, I used to work from home. So I'm, I'm the one that went to mommy and me and and, and all of those uh, type of things. And, and you know, taking care of little kids is, is, is a big job uh, and the rest of the household. So, you know, it's not always easy to have a side gig and to do all these other things, but to the extent that you can, I think you protect yourself that if, you know, the, the marriage doesn't work out, uh, you, you're not stuck and starting from square one 10 years later and back almost 
not even to an entry level job because now you're competing, you know, with recent college grads or, or, or whatever. It just makes things much more difficult for you. I think I love that piece. I absolutely love that. Making sure to stay connected, that you're still networking, that you still stay fresh, go to those conventions. That is an excellent piece of advice. Um, before we close, do you have any last minute um, advice that you would like to give? And also, if you could tell the women, tell us how we can, how they can find you and get their hands on your book. Okay, so uh, the website for all of my books um, is thinkfinancially.com. Um, if anybody you know, is going through the situation or worried that they might, um, I offer consultations. I charge a flat fee of $400. Um, there's a, a tab on my website, thinkfinancially.com, where you could sign up, um, um, you know, for a consultation or my main website, which is bedrockdivorce.com. Uh, and, you know, I'm certainly available to help anyone, whether it's a consultation or, you know, they need to retain my services afterwards. Yeah, I, I recommend, you know, reading the books. I mean, so, you know, some of them, you know, about hiding assets and stay at home mom. Is just an electronic format. It's two dollars and ninety nine cents. Um, you know, it's it's well worth um, reading that for sure. If that's what your situation is, um, educating yourself just so you understand the process and doing a lot of the things that we talked about today. Make sure you have that separate bank account. Make sure you have credit in your own name. Make sure you know you sit down with your spouse and go through the finances and what your credit card debt is and what your mortgages are and where your money's invested and uh, you know, what's on your tax return. You know, don't just sign the tax return, you know, ask questions, sit down with the account and understand what's going on. Um, you know, knowledge is power, it's, re it's, it's really true. Um, it's a lot harder to pull the wool over your eyes uh, if you're absolutely aware of everything that's going on with your finances. I want to just say I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us, Jeff. I, I mean, you've dropped some real jewels here um, this morning on the East Coast, and um, I, I wholeheartedly agree with everything that you're saying. I, I definitely believe that women should be empowered, and you can be feminine, and I teach a lot of women to um, embrace their femininity and be empowered in it. And a lot of women think that being feminine means being docile and weak. But this is one of the reasons why I want to have conversation with you so that women can understand that being feminine is not about being stupid and ditzy and just letting someone run all over you. It's about arming yourself with the knowledge necessary so that you can stay in a place where you are on top. And um, I appreciate you so much for giving us your oh, my time. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yes, and maybe one, one of these days we can have you on to maybe talk about investments and some of the things sure. that you think um, would be worth women investing. Um, again, you can find Jeff on thinkfinancially.com or bedrockdivorce.com. Again, my name is Candace 
Smith Adewale, author of The Black Girl's Guide to Being Blissfully Feminine and A Girl's Guide to Being a Lady in Waiting. Um, you can find me on Facebook right now, Candace Smith Adewale and um, The Loving You Lifestyle, so that we will be soon talking about The Loving You Lifestyle and what that's all about. I'm very excited. Um, that will be launching in about eight weeks. So want to again thank everyone who joined us and you all take care and have a very very wonderful day thank you